Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined by my friend Pete Spiliakos. Today we are talking about the Batman trilogy and about Christopher Nolan's intentions as an author. Pete, please introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Pete Spiliakos. I'm a web columnist for the online version of First Things Magazine, and I place some articles in National Review Online, and otherwise, I'm pretty uninteresting. But I occasionally write about politics, and occasionally write about movies on the internet. Today, Titus and I are going to talk about Christopher Nolan, and what Christopher Nolan is up to, and some of the themes that carry through Christopher Nolan's superhero work, especially. What I'm on the show today to talk about is Christopher Nolan directs a lot of superhero movies, but he's not really interested in superheroes as much as he is about Greek philosophy and theater. And you can see this in a lot of his fight scenes. He doesn't do action choreography. He's not very interested in special effects. That's not where his heart really flutters. Yes. I've seen criticisms of Nolan as being a mediocre action director. And if you watch Dunkirk, his ability to choreograph violence is extraordinary when he's engaged. But in his superhero movies, he is not especially engaged in the choreography. They're pretty mediocre. They're superhero movies where the violence is carried by the story rather than the story existing in order to get you from fight scene to fight scene. And some of his fight scenes are actually very, very stagey. The, the, the classic example would be the climactic fight scene in The Dark Knight Rises, where you have the police running down the middle of the street shooting their revolvers against terrorists who have armor, they have automatic weapons, they have artillery. Now, even based on the physics of superhero movies, that's a completely idiotic strategy being undertaken by the police. But it doesn't really matter, because the fight doesn't exist to be tactically realistic. It exists simply to symbolize the Gotham police becoming a legitimate police force, having a legitimate monopoly on force in Gotham. They could have been fighting with, with obviously paper swords for all that it mattered, because it wasn't about looking at guys punching each other and being entertained by guys punching each other. It was about the feeling of this one group that in Batman Begins had been this corrupt and incompetent organization, and now suddenly they're putting their lives lives on the line in order to be a force that protects the rule of law and is self-sacrificing. And that was a story that Nolan wanted to tell, and the visual of them rushing towards what could be their deaths in order to save their city was much more important than whether the actual fight itself made some sort of tactical sense. Yeah, that's perfectly true. And it's also, of course, very emotional. If the movie has carried you up to that point, you're going to feel what heroic sacrifices risked here. And you've already alluded to this, that there is a great transformation that runs through the three movies that puts Gotham at the center of Nolan's interest as a writer. Say more about that. Oh, one interesting thing about Gotham in the Christopher Nolan movies is that it's not an American municipality as much as he can possibly make it. Gotham isn't a subsidiary government to the state. We'll never find out what state it is. We don't care. Gotham is a distinct political community. We're supposed to see it more like a polis in ancient Greece, a self-governing community that can govern itself better or worse based on the choices of the people who live in it, rather than on other higher forms of government. The state government and the federal government are completely absent from the first two movies. They're completely absent from Batman Begins, The Dark Knight. That's true, and they only appear in The Dark Knight Rises in a perfunctory manner that's not at all realistic, again, to justify precisely the isolation or the self-contained character of the city. Yeah, nothing about American municipal governance in the early 21st century has the state or the federal government that hands off. But he's trying to tell a story. And as you say, in Dark Knight Rises, he only mentions the federal government because he kind of has to. 
but then only to write it out because he doesn't want that confusion of you know snarling federalism and the why isn't the federal government stepping in? Why isn't the state government stepping in? Because he wants a story of a political community that is disintegrating and is facing challenges and then is refounding itself without the complications of actually being a subsidiary within a much larger political community. For him, Gotham might be ancient Athens, or it might be ancient Sparta, or it might be ancient Thebes, where it's going through its own regime cycle. Yes. So where do we start off with Gotham in Batman Begins? Well, I think one place to start off is, I think you would agree that Gotham, when it begins, is a semi-failed state. The government is only barely ticking along. It does seem to be providing basic services, but also stealing from people. It is partly incapable of preventing crime. It is partly in league with crime. People who are honest, who want good government, are at the moment helpless and hunted, mostly just keeping their heads down or waiting to be assassinated. Part of the story is how you get from a place where injustice is rampant to where justice is at least present. But one of the themes of the story is that you can't get from point A, which is a failed state, to C, the rule of law, straight. You have to go through point B, which is the rule of personal justice. Batman steps in, extra-legally limits the impact of crime, creates the space for the reform of these government institutions. Yeah, But so all we start with this super-corrupt political legal establishment that seems to fit the description of Livy, that we are too weak for our vices and too weak for our remedies. And it's not clear, of course, throughout most of the trilogy, when once you do get a superhero to enforce justice personally, it's not clear whether the city could live with this or could survive, the remedy might be more dangerous than the disease. That's the fear throughout the story. It's a fear that's shared by even the people who are trying to do the right thing. Bruce Wayne worries about just that. Commissioner Gordon worries about just that. Which I also think it's a major divergence from Frank Miller's Year One, which is one of the source materials for Batman Begins. What I just described is Batman Begins, semi-failed state in league with organized crime, hunted honest officials. That's all out of Year One. But one of the big differences between Year One and Batman Begins is how they imagine the relationship between Batman and Commissioner Gordon. Whereas in Year One, Batman and Commissioner Gordon form an alliance where Gordon begins the process of reforming the Gotham Police and Batman begins his career as a crime fighter. In the comic book, this is pointing towards a sustainable equilibrium. You will have the police dealing with ordinary crime and Batman supplementing them on that and also fighting super crime. Whereas in Batman Begins, this is explicitly a temporary relationship. Both Gordon and Batman understand this as being a way station towards establishing a legitimate state and the rule of law. They both know that Batman can't be Batman for very long because he's going to die and he's going to get old and he's going to break. And what's the point if when he can't do it anymore, it reverts back to what it was? In year one, it's transitioning towards a sustainable relationship between Batman and the police within a world where superheroes are normal and supervillains are normal. In Batman Begins, this is, okay, we have to do this in order to remedy the problems of the moment, but we have to transition to the rule of law as quickly and as completely as possible because this is not sustainable. So Frank Miller loves comic books to an extent because of a kind of polytheistic system they provide, that the natural human beings like the police will fight natural criminals, and the supernatural beings who are demigods will be fighting each other, and he wants an ecology where both are possible. Nolan is way more realistic. He knows that the question of law and regime are central, and you do not get to hedge on that. You cannot have a regime for superheroes and a regime for human 
human beings or a mixture of the two. The regime has got to be livable for human beings and that means at the same time that at some point it will have to depend on human beings for its sustenance. It cannot keep getting supernatural help. Batman, I think, in this context for Nolan, is a metaphor for somebody who, within a failed state, starts using extra-legal violence in order to maintain justice. It could have been the guardian angels. Think of Batman as being a violent gang, forces the police to reform, but at the same time, it's outside the law. That's what basically Batman is in this context. This is not a sustainable equilibrium. At some point, either you will transition to a legitimate state, or, as they say, if you live long enough like this, you will eventually become the villain. Yeah, so the question is how do you build up to this hope that there's a better way, that there's a way to deal with legal and political problems that doesn't mean people are going to have to kill each other if they have the guts to fight and everybody else lives in terror. The first movie is dealing with the problems of justice and how do you establish justice because justice is not a simple concept. But the second movie is about the transition to the rule of law. And one of the things that struck me, especially among some conservative commentators, was that, wow, this is about 9-11. This is about Iraq. Well, it's not really about 9-11 because America wasn't a failed state on 9-11. I do think that the Dark Knight was influenced by the Sunni insurgency in Iraq. You have this force, Al-Qaeda, now ISIS, campaign, which was completely bloodthirsty, completely insane, every evil you can possibly imagine. I do think that influenced Nolan's interpretation of Joker. I also think that scheme could go too far. Batman within Gotham is not George W. Bush in America. I think that what the Iraq insurgency did was help shape how Nolan presented the problem of transitioning from the rule of personal justice, from the rule of Batman, to the rule of law while facing an ingenious and radical opposition to the rule of law. How do we get the people to accept legitimate government when you have this violent terrorist group blowing everything up, seeming to create chaos and seeking to re-atomize society? Yeah, and this gave Nolan a natural step forward. Joker does say that Batman has introduced a change into Gotham. Gotham used to be a fairly corrupt, and in being a corrupt, a fairly conformist system. The politicians, the cops, and the criminals were in cahoots because they recognized their similarities. They didn't want to say that the difference between the legal and the illegal is very important. Batman made that difference fundamental. He made it possible to distinguish a white knight from a dark knight, for example. And Batman did that because his own education was about fear. The teaching about invisibility that animates a part of Batman Begins is basically telling you if you're invisible, you don't have to be afraid. Everybody else has to be afraid of you. And Batman's attacks from invisibility are supposed to scare criminals who had become impudent. Crime also should live with a kind of fear. Criminals should not dare to do what they do in broad daylight. When that happened, Gotham became a failed state. It was the shamelessness of the criminals. All states have some degree of corruption and crime, but it cannot get out of hand, that is to say, it cannot dare go public. And Batman decided that the way to solve that problem was to terrify people. It is not enough for him to stop crimes, he has to scare the living daylights out of people. Batman's problem is that the kind of rationalism that tells the cops and the policemen and the criminals that they're all the same because they all want good stuff is dangerous. If you think to yourself, I might choose to obey the law, but I might choose not to, depending on what's profitable for me, then there can be no rule of law. The rule of law is there when people who contemplate breaking the law are scared out of their wits or driven insane. And that's what Batman provides. That's how he installs the rule of personal justice. He projects an enormous shadow because he can scare the daylights out of criminals. 
and this Joker says has changed things. Now, fear is a real living possibility. I think that's true, but I also think the rule of law can exist ultimately if both the public and the guardians of the rule of law believe that it is a good in itself and are willing to take risks for that good. Policemen have to be willing to risk their lives rather than take bribes. Individual citizens have to be willing to go to the police, even though there might be a possibility, no matter how small, that there might be repercussions. What I think parallels both Gotham and Iraq, this kind of civic-mindedness was absent in both Gotham and Batman Begins and in Iraq both before and after the invasion. And now the problem in The Dark Knight, how do you get people to believe that the rule of law is not simply desirable in some kind of abstract sense, but also achievable? That the risks they run in gaining the rule of law are not simply going to be a waste of their time, that they're not simply fools chasing an illusion. Now what Al-Qaeda was telling the Iraqi public, what Joker is telling the Gotham public, chasing after the rule of law is ridiculous. It's failed because it's an illusion, and our violence is demonstrated that it is an illusion. That's the central conflict of the story, and I think was centrally inspired by the Iraq war. How do you get people to buy into the rule of law under these sort of conditions? Not when the rule of law kind of exists now in America. We kind of have it. We would understand it. But in a place where it's been absent for a long time, people can hardly even remember it. And people who are talking about the rule of law come across like naifs. Yeah, so inspiring some kind of hope is necessary for people to get any confidence to behave like citizens. There is a certain kind of virtue to citizenship, and it does mean taking certain personal risks for the sake of a good that is not necessarily personal, a good that belongs to the city. And that's supposed to tie people up to their city in a way which hadn't been possible in Gotham, where of necessity it was every man for himself. Joker tries to test this new situation where law is introduced. He wants to show that people obey the law because it's convenient, and if you make it inconvenient, they will behave in as ugly a way as he is. And that's why the character of Harvey Dent is so important in that story. Batman, Bruce Wayne, believes that the only way that people will accept the rule of law is if it is symbolized in a human being. In America, we have George Washington. sort of plays that role. They don't believe that the public can be persuaded of the value and possibility of the rule of law based on argument, based on reason. It has to be based, in their minds, on personality. It's not, I believe in the rule of law, it's, I believe in Harvey Dent, which is why they believe it would be so shattering to find out that Harvey Dent ultimately turned his back on the rule of law at the end of the story, which is why they build the noble lie. Which also gets to one of the themes I think is interesting in all of Nolan's superhero movies is he's in constant dialogue with ancient Greek philosophy and ancient Greek theater. Whereas Gotham is founded on a noble lie. that The lie that Batman, the man of justice, killed Harvey Dent, which demonstrates that the rule of personal justice is bad, and Harvey Dent becomes a martyr for the rule of law. Now, this is in dialogue both with the movie The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, if there's... You know, when there's conflict between the truth and the legend, print the legend, and Socrates' noble lie in The Republic. The Dark Knight ends seemingly with Nolan accepting the importance of the noble lie, that you cannot have a regime where popular support for the rule of law is founded on reason. The public has to believe that we are citizens because we were all born of the same earth and we're different from everywhere else, as in Socrates. And the public has to believe that the rule of law is good because Harvey Dent was good. And the rule of personal justice was bad because Batman was bad. And no one thinks that ultimately founding the regime of law on lies is a mistake rather than a necessary concession to human weakness. 
yeah, so the end of the Dark Knight is by no means a resolution. It radicalizes one part of the problem. It turns out that you can't trust Harvey Dent either. That maybe people put too much on his shoulders in believing in him so badly. And maybe he took up too great a burden himself in accepting this kind of mantle of the White Knight. But then there is the other part of the problem, which is practical, not personal, and is delayed. What happens if people ever wake up to the truth? What happens if people, instead of being gullible, turn out to be fairly canny, fairly inquisitive, and fairly suspicious? That's part of the question of poetry and philosophy, as you suggested about Greece. Are people really that gullible, or is it possible that they become suspicious of the stories they're sold? Batman had operated to such an extent on fear precisely because he believed that there's no other way, that you have to scare people with legends of this semi-divine or demonic character who comes out of nowhere and ruins successful criminal enterprise. He relied very much on that and that's why the conflict in the first movie is between two types of the use of fear to drive people literally insane. Batman Begins ends with the victory of Batman not because he rejected rule by fear, but because he was serious about it being a public good for the city. And in as much as he inoculated people against a self-destructive fear, he still installed rule by fear of himself. In as much as he acts, he separates the legal from the criminal, and he protects the legal from the criminal to a very large extent by fear. Whereas now, at the end of Dark Knight, there has been one half-successful attempt to move from that to a regime where people are actually willing to take chances on behalf of the city and to act in accordance to law because that's their way of life and they recognize its goodness in an experiential way now that they have had some experience of the rule of law. Whether, however, you can keep telling people stories whether you can rule by a noble lie also depends on whether the people really are that gullible. What if they're much more suspicious and much less likely to gratefully accept a legend? One thing about The Dark Knight is that, especially at the end, it's kind of based on a low opinion of the public. Like you said, it implies a certain gullibility that no one would ever figure out that Harvey Dent was not who they said they were. But it's also based on a sense that the public simply cannot be convinced by the force of argument or even by experience that the rule of law is good. Because if they could be convinced by experience, then a year or two later, after things are much better, the public might say, well, you know what? Okay, Harvey Dent turned out to be a bad guy, but this is better than what we had before. But they never do that because they never trust the public to be able to follow their arguments. Whereas The Dark Knight Rises, one of the themes is, at the end of the day, in a regime with the rule of law, you have to trust the public. The regime will never be sustainable, absent some sort of public virtue. Eventually, you have to take your chances and make your arguments to the public rather than just try to either scarify them or fool them. Yes, exactly, right? You can create legends on a prior basis of fear, but that kind of consent will never really be reasonable. And there's a good question whether people will really accept it or in their heart of hearts just pretend. In The Dark Knight Rises, Commissioner Gordon tries and tries to convince himself to come out with the truth and bear the consequences, but he can never quite do it. He delays it up until it becomes too late at that, and he becomes himself exposed and his credibility ruined. And that's somewhat ambiguous. It's not clear whether that confirms Batman's low opinion of the public 
or on the other hand it confirms Gordon's sense of moral responsibility that you should trust the public. And so the question there is what is the character of popular consent to rule? Can people consent in fear? Can people consent when they're being sold lies? Or does popular consent involve some degree of knowledge of public affairs and involvement in them? Well, also, I think it's a metaphor for a, a lot of eight understandings of itself, whether it's America and founding mythology. How much do we focus on slavery? Or whether it's France and its divine right of kings, or whether it's Socrates and the noble lives about how the city came into existence and how people's places in society are stratified. Some people would argue that people have to believe things that are untrue or not believe certain things that are true in order for the regime to be stable, in order for the regime to get popular consent. Whereas, especially in The Dark Knight Rises, no one makes the argument that a regime in which the people choose based on full knowledge of its founding, both the good and the bad, is much more stable and much more sustainable than one in which popular consent is based on lies. He explicitly rejects the idea of the noble eye as being either desirable or practical. Undesirable on a personal level, Bruce Wayne and Commissioner Gordon are both ruined by the noble eye. Gordon loses his family. Bruce Wayne becomes a recluse. But at the same time, the city itself is hopelessly vulnerable to the exposure of that lie. It brings to mind something like the 1960s in America, where the country started finally to come to terms with the horror of slavery and Jim Crow. And basically, a lie turned a lot of people against the idea of the United States as being even potentially a good society. And one of the things no one is, I think, going at is that trying to found belief in the rule of law or a common citizenship in these sorts of lies is ultimately building a time bomb within the that will eventually explode. Yes, and as you pointed out, it will ruin the credibility of justice and of the law and of the common good for very many people, especially people who are idealistic. They are the most vulnerable to great disappointment, but they're also often the most necessary for the stability of the regime and for its self-perpetuation. And it's very risky to lie to them because the truth coming out is going to ruin things for them and therefore for the regime. And so in The Dark Knight Rises, which is unjustly maligned as a movie, you get to see more of Nolan's as opposed to, say, Batman's view of the city. You get a certain version of the conflict between the few and the many. You get certain questions about in what ways you could trust the police to do justice and in what ways you couldn't. You get to see that your first vision of Gotham, which was so influential, was Gotham seen from the point of view of Batman. Certain conditions lead him to assume personal justice. He exaggerates how much chaos and how much corruption there is and how nobody is really trustworthy except himself and a few allies. In The Dark Knight Rises you get to see that a few people are trustworthy and that some people can associate. And you get this kind of comparison that's neatly symbolic that Batman learned his fears and his entire version of government because as a boy he was terrorized. And part of that terror is the violence of murder and part of it is falling into a pit. And in The Dark Knight Rises you get the exact same sequence with the terror and then all the cops fall into a pit and they have to live underground. But they come out of that because they are together with a certain sacrificial sense that you could relate to the founding as a pledge of life and fortune and sacred honor for the common good, they don't come out with the sense that they should start an oligarchy or a military tyranny or that they should just give up. They do dedicate themselves to the rule of law after that experience.
Yeah, I do think that The Dark Knight Rises is maybe like thematically the richest of the three movies. It's also the stagiest, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. If you look at The Dark Knight Rises, it gives us the most information about Gotham society, because as you said, it takes a wider lens, pulls away from Bruce Wayne's perspective to the relations in the city. And one thing I think is important to understand Gotham in The Dark Knight Rises, Nolan is working really hard to make Gotham a generic polis city political community. The Dark Knight Rises is all about political and class conflicts in Gotham, but you notice what's missing. Race and ethnicity as political cleavages are completely missing from The Dark Knight Rises, which is not something that's missing from American municipal politics. The politics of class in Gotham is vaguely rich or poor. We don't give it any idea of the institutional ways in which rich and poor relate to each other. It's generally the divisions between rich and poor you would generally see referred to in, say, James Madison or in Aristotle. There's a rich that have stuff. We don't necessarily know how they get it. We have a poor that don't. Whether the relations are agricultural or software-based or industry-based, it's less important than how do the rich and poor relate to each other in a polis. The Gotham that exists in this movie would have been recognizable on a thematic level to people 2,200 years ago. Stage some version of The Dark Knight in ancient Athens. They would understand the conflicts. And one of the things that Nolan is shooting for is he wants it to be recognizable 2,000 years into the future. Because for him, these are not momentary conflicts. The answers might change, but the questions are always the same. These are eternal quests for human beings. How do we relate to each other? How do the rich relate to the poor? How do people relate to their government? He wants these stories to be relatable on a universal human level, which also gets something else I want to talk about, which was the idea that Nolan is a conservative director or is a conservative in politics. And maybe he is. I would tend to doubt it. I noticed that Pat Leahy is all over his superhero movies. It's not Ted Cruz. And Pat Leahy is a very liberal senator. Maybe it could be some sort of personal connection. But I think you can look at all of Christopher Nolan's superhero movies, and everything is consistent with being pro-choice on abortion, favoring single-payer health care, favoring the abolition of private gun ownership, voting for President Obama. You could be a political liberal in all these ways and still not in any way violate the spirit of those movies. What Nolan lacks is certain ticks that we associate with Hollywood political activism. What he lacks is disfiguring his art in order to make a contemporary political point that's extraneous. I think a lot of Hollywood directors, while they were making The Dark Knight, will be looking at, huh, Batman's doing surveillance. Oh, that's a tough question. One of the themes of The Dark Knight is, these are hard questions. Batman questions the utility of it. Alfred questions the utility of it. A lot of Hollywood directors would say, okay, we need a Dick Cheney character to try to steal that from Batman. And he's got to be bald, and he's got to have Dick Cheney glasses, and it has to be obvious that Republicans are bad. Well, he's not going to do that, because you want people in 200 years to focus on the conflict, not to focus on Dick Cheney is bad. Now, maybe he thinks Dick Cheney is bad, or maybe he doesn't. It doesn't matter, because it's irrelevant to this movie. The absence of those ticks, I think, is often read as conservatism, where it's just an absence of a certain kind of stupid. Yeah, I agree with that. He is not primarily a partisan or an ideologue, and that does make him stand out. And we are in the situation where, in a sense, we're expecting too little. That's not enough to make somebody a conservative. But in another sense, we're setting ourselves up to get even more than we might otherwise get. Because we're not getting a guy who would give the ideology or propaganda conservatives would like, or libertarians, or the stuff that liberals or leftists would hate. Because that's not what it's about primarily. Primarily it's about questions that all people should be able to think about together and to try to articulate in a believable manner. 
And in that sense, the superhero movie or the comic book with superheroes isn't really that partisan. To make one comment about the genre, what Nolan got out of this is uh, an opportunity to bring his classical education interests in politics and poetry to the screens, a way to make believable concerns that simply belong to the human reflection on politics. It's worth reflecting on why it is that people so desperately want these heroes and why the heroes turn darker, and Nolan can help you deal with that. He can help you think through what the rule of personal justice would mean. What should you be looking forward or should be looking up to if you think about the problem of justice in a personal and existentially acute way? But then that story has to follow its own logic and it has to be true to human experience and reflection, not to check all the marks on an ideological or party platform. And you also need, I think, a broader view of human relationships. I think a lot of our politics is looking at the opposition as being an embodiment of eternal evil, whereas Nolan is looking at political conflicts as being much more nuanced and much more internal. One thing I think you can say about Nolan is that he's not a communist. You look at Man of Steel, which we'll talk about a little later, when we see what Krypton looks like, when Clark Kent is looking at Krypton's history, the sterile society that died because it was too regimented, Krypton's history is illustrated in a socialist realist way. Mm -hmm. He is trying to send a message. And the people who read The Dark Knight as being anti-left, I think, are defining left too narrowly. I don't think it's critical of, say, Hillary Clinton or even Bernie Sanders as a democratic socialist. It is hostile to a certain anarchist, Marxist, Leninist strand in leftist thought, which is good. He should be. I mean, everybody should be. It's monstrous. It's genuinely evil. But there's a lot of left-wing politics that are perfectly compatible with the politics that you see in The Dark Knight Rises. And the other thing that's missing that reads people, I think, to see him as something of a closet conservative is the absence of the SJW framework, where there are certain themes, especially in college, where the understanding of the good society is filtered by putting black hats and white hats based on identity. The movie doesn't show Gotham as being necessarily racist. For some people, that's missing. American society is racist. Well, the particular cleavages in American society on race are neither timeless nor placeless. And he wants the conflicts to be understandable 200, 300, 400, 500 years from now when the territory that is currently in the United States has got maybe some kind of successor government. I think those are the kinds of ambitions that Christopher Nolan has. For certain writers, the absence of these themes signals conservatism I think I'm both on the left and the right, whereas in practice, it's him having bigger fish to fry. Yeah, the only sense in which he's conservative is that he wants to conserve for people the opportunity to think about the most fundamental questions in the most serious way that they can. He's not interested in getting everybody to give the same answer at the end of the movie. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people, that reads in contemporary American cultural politics as being right. The thing is, that would have been untranslatable. Forty years ago, left-wing directors would make movies where these themes would be either absent or they would be implied. That wasn't considered right-wing, but given the response to George W. Bush's disastrous second administration and also certain trends on college campuses, if you're not hunting for the racism or the race metaphor or the sexism metaphor in Batman Begins, if it had been made by a lesser director, you would have had the police officers beating up some kid in the alley for being gay. Even though it's extraneous to the story, the director would have to show you that he was down for the struggle on gay rights. That wasn't one of the themes to the story. Nolan is kind of above having to demonstrate to the audience that he's woke, because woke is going to change from time to time, and he's not making it just for the people who are watching it right now. Yeah, even in the lifetime of a man, when, when this guy was born, there was no such thing as the hysteria that's now prevalent, and by the time he's a grandfather or what have you, again, it will have passed away. He's just more aware than some people are nowadays that these things don't last. 
there are also reflections on eternal problems of governance and social life. That this place doesn't necessarily have to have our particular cleavages in every way, and at the same time, it doesn't have to take sides, because this isn't about contemporary party politics. Exactly. Everything that's, to some extent, reminiscent of contemporary stuff is provisional. It's on the way to making very serious inquiries into what really separates a city, what might endanger it. Why don't we all just get along? If you take that seriously, it's because we are in certain ways divided as many and few. And The Dark Knight Rises has a lot more to say than the rest of the trilogy about class issues and how those structure politics. I know you had some things to say about that in regards to the fights between Batman and Bane. Yeah, the opening scene in The Dark Knight Rises with Bane on the plane is outstanding. There's nothing like it in the rest of the movies because it really belongs in a James Bond movie, as enjoyable as it is. In The Dark Knight Rises, the fights are almost superfluous. They could almost be off camera. The first fight between Batman and Bane, where Batman meets Bane, they'd fought very shortly before that. But where Bane says, I was born in the darkness, that speech, the fight itself is relatively irrelevant to what's being said. The fight is a life support system so that the audience could hear a monologue by a villain. The fight says a lot of things about class politics and violence. Bruce Wayne came from a wealthy family and adopted violence later, whereas Bane came from the bottoms of society and violence was a way of life. And he feels that he owns it in a way that Bruce Wayne never could. But it's also a theme all through The Dark Knight Rises, where the fights themselves aren't meant as spectacle, but simply exist on a symbolic level. These are symbols fighting each other. How should the city organize? Police fight terrorists. The fight could have been offstage for all that matters. What matters is that police were willing to risk their lives for the good of the city, and that made them the legitimate police force that they weren't before. Batman, Bruce Wayne, is willing to embrace even more than before, self-sacrificing violence, because he is a citizen. Yeah, right, that's the fight where he is the most equal with his colleagues. He fights pretty much alone in Batman Begins, and at the beginning of Dark Knight, you have these kids who are playing Batman, who think that they're now his equal, but of course, he thinks of them as misguided, petulant children who are going to get themselves in trouble. Only now is he in a situation where he has to accept a certain kind of equality with these men. Yeah, he himself comes to embrace the rule of law. It's also the rule of law being embraced in truth. Whereas in The Dark Knight, the rule of law is only embraced in the lie. Batman becomes a villain in order to get people to embrace the rule of law. In The Dark Knight Rises, Batman fights alongside the police. This is Batman and the police publicly showing each other that we can be trusted, that this is right, that this is more important. We tried the rule of terror under Batman, and it was better than the failed state. But eventually, the rule of terror under Batman becomes the rule of terror under these really bad people. The problem of the good king is ultimately that he dies because he's mortal, and the good king might well be replaced by a bad king. Mm -hmm. So you want something more sustainable. You want something more sustainable in the form of the rule of law. And all of this fighting, if you look at these fight scenes, they're not that good. They're very perfunctory. But I think a lot of times the audience doesn't matter because they're so caught up in the themes, even if they don't know it, even if they don't necessarily articulate it in those ways. These symbols fighting each other, these ideas fighting each other, that is thrilling, even if the fight scene direction itself is relatively indifferent. Yeah, nobody's looking for revolutionary technology or choreography here, but the strength of the plot and of the cinematic work, and always with Nolan movies, the music or sound design, they do carry the audience through and they get that this is basically about installing the rule of law and uh, that legitimacy requires taking certain chances and some people are willing to do it. It is quite a moving scene in that sense. Yeah, well, once again, the famous scene where there's the helicopter shot where you're looking above the buildings, the police are charging down the main street to fight the terrorists. 
on the one hand, if you even stop to think about it for a second, it's completely idiotic that they would charge in that way. You could just as easily see that as a play where you see a bunch of guys in blue charge across so that the audience gets the idea that this is a sacrificial act. The symbolism is what matters. I think people buy into the themes. To give you an example, the prequel trilogy on Star Wars, it has a lot of violence, but it usually isn't engaging because you don't buy into the conflicts. You don't buy into these people at all. Whereas in The Dark Knight Rises, since the stakes are real, people buy into the violence, even if the violence itself is not necessarily, but it doesn't matter. It still gets your blood pumping because there are stakes here. And mm -hmm. the stakes are, what is the cost of the rule of law? Because people do die. The one ambitious police officer who was hoping to be commissioner someday puts aside his ambitions in order to risk his life and gives up his life in order to recapture the city from its enemies. And in his death and him putting ambition aside for the public good is where the city itself, where the rule of law ultimately gets legitimacy. That's what you really want to get out of these things. The violence is supposed to serve a certain dramatic purpose and it's supposed to involve you in certain moral questions in an urgent, in an immediate way. And in that sense, it succeeds. I would also say that some action movies are, the symbolic themes are less important than the violence. Now, example would be the first Blade movie with Wesley Snipes, which I believe was written by David Goyer, who was a co-writer on some of the Batman movies. It's got some interesting themes in there about capitalism and globalization. But at the end of the day, the movie exists as a life support system for a series of fights. Terminator 2 has, it's got some interesting themes in there, but ultimately the purpose of the movie is to get you from one spectacular special effects scene to the other. The Dark Knight trilogy, the fights exist because of audience expectations and of Nolan having to work within certain conventions. But if you take the violent scenes out of Terminator 2, it's not very interesting. If you take the violent scenes out of the Dark Knight trilogy, it's pretty much just as interesting as it was before. Yeah, you have all the stuff that we've been talking about already. And if anything, the problem here is the extent to which the conventions of the genre and the expectations of both audience and critics put limits on what the writer-director can say to you. It requires quite some digging out of the themes from this clutter of action, but it's worth the effort. It's interesting that Nolan was able to get that kind of studio independence, because I figure the next thing I'm going to talk about is, is Man of Steel, because when Nolan tried to make the post-Dark Knight trilogy superhero movies for Warner, he got one movie where he was able to keep the studio at arm's length, and then in the second movie, he ultimately, I believe, left the entire project because he couldn't pursue the movies as he would like to. Man of Steel, which is his post-Dark Knight superhero movie, continues a lot of the same themes from the Dark Knight trilogy in a different way, whereas Dawn of Justice doesn't. And that's because Nolan was no longer able to tell the kind of stories that he wanted to tell, and he walked away. Because just making movies about guys in spandex punching each other doesn't interest him at all, no matter how much money might be in it. That's true. It seems like the studio eventually ruined this because they wanted too much money too fast, and they no longer were satisfied with getting every couple of years one of these movies. And I suppose that's a limit of the studio system as it now exists. But Man of Steel, again, brought out all the philosophical themes that are of interest to Nolan. Again, you have a question of what it would take to ground justice for people. What sort of things do they have to hope for? What sort of things do they have to fear? But in this case, their story starts very differently. Zack Snyder and uh, David Goyer and Chris Nolan, Krypton. Now, this is one of the subtlest and the most imaginative uses of political philosophy in cinema in our time. So talk to us about it, Pete. Well, one thing that's great about Man of Steel is it's more blatant about its dialogue with Socrates and Plato than the Dark Knight trilogy. At one point, Clark Kent is actually carrying a volume of Plato under his arm, so the audience will go, no, it's not your imagination. I really am talking about Plato's Republic. 
And Krypton is imagined as Plato's Republic. Well, it's not exactly. There are certain differences. People know who their kids are. But it's a society in which citizenship has displaced all other forms of human attachment. Like our late mutual friend, Peter Lawler, I... <laughs> I miss him a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. Excuse me. Sorry. He always said that politics is part of who we are, but it's not all of who we are, and it's not the most important part of who we are. And I think that's something that Christopher Nolan agrees that we are in part political animals. We are inevitably political animals. When we stop being political animals altogether, like in Gotham and Batman Begins, things go very wrong very fast. But we're also other things. We're also family members. We have this personal love, this love of friendship. Well, Krypton has largely lost all of those things, and it's become a sterile, horrible society that's dying. Even though it's extremely wealthy, it's extremely technologically advanced. It's exhausted, but it's exhausted because it's lost crucial elements of human society. Now, in Plato's Republic, they're having a conversation about what is virtue. They start with the assumption that public virtue is better than private virtue. As the conversation progresses, Socrates is doing more and more and more to remove all other personal attachments other than the attachment to the good of the polity. Now, the superficial lesson is that we should all become some version of Sparta. I think the deeper message is moderation. Citizenship, like all other things, cannot become the be-all and end-all of human goods. Well, in Krypton, they chose citizenship to be the be-all and end-all of human goods. And the resulting society is sterile and it's dying. The conflict in Krypton is between Jor-El, who is willing to break with this conception, you know, and also Lara. For all of the talk that people have about the absence of strong female characters, Lara L in that story is an extremely strong, intelligent female character. Laura and Jorel believe that the society is not sustainable. They believe in personal love. They have their own kid in a home birth who they're going to raise against the uh, laws of their society because they understand that the human family and other human attachments are extremely, extremely important. They're what make life worth living. On the other hand, you have Zod, who's one of the great movie villains. Christopher Nolan makes great movie villains. Zod wants to double down on civic virtue. Zod believes that the city is failing because people's idea of citizenship is insufficiently rooted ruthless, insufficiently blind to all other interests except the interests of the city. That basically is the central conflict of the story. What is the place of citizenship in human life? Whereas Krypton wants it to be everything, and it's failing, Zod wants citizenship to be everything. There's no acknowledgement of any responsibilities to anyone outside the circle of the city. Whereas Jor-El understands citizenship as being something that's inevitably important, but ultimately just one part of what we are. Yeah, so in a fairly obvious and also in a fairly subtle way at the same time, you see the question of the total politicization of life being played out in the prelude to the Superman movie, Man of Steel. And that's, of course, in certain ways a warning directly for how we conduct our political discourse. But it's also a deeper investigation into how we reflect on and how we act on our impulse to do justice. It is our capacity as citizens that gives us our dignity from which we speak out against injustice and we go out seeking justice. In certain ways, Krypton just looks better than any real world, better than America, because everything is arranged there in a way that you don't every day risk seething when some indignity happens to you. Everything is settled in advance. If justice is the set of relations of organization between the various citizens, Krypton has that down to a science, including a genetic science. But people still have an impulse to seek justice and to get angry at injustice. And that's what's shown in Zod. It is not enough to have this kind of city for him. When it runs into trouble, his instinct is to blame somebody for it. And blaming the rulers and getting rid of them is only the beginning. 
what he wants is to get rid of anybody who is insufficiently dedicated and he has pushed the usual anger that makes you say there ought to be a law whenever something happens that you don't like he's pushed that to the extreme so that from now on dedication to the city will be judged by the success of the city if the city is insufficiently successful some people just will have to be punished starting with the rulers but not limited to them well also he can't see what's wrong what's wrong with krypton is that it's hyper politicized it's exactly but he can't see that his only answer is to double down on public virtue now one other theme of the movie too is that the most impressive characters in the movie on a moral level are not clark kent it's jor-el and pa kent jor-el explicitly puts his family's good against the public good by sending his son out by acting as a critic of society and pa kent in maybe the most affecting scene in the movie dies rather than risk his son revealing himself to be an alien he puts his son's life above his own it's a beautiful act of sacrificial love he just kind of stands straight and then he disappears it's the most affecting act of courage in any of the known superhero movies because it doesn't involve personal violence it just involves sacrificial heroism contrast that to zod who was a warrior who's a citizen who's just a warrior and a citizen and he can't look beyond it I've always wondered if Nolan has read Leo Strauss's book on Machiavelli, especially the introduction. Strauss says, America is a society founded on the belief that all people have rights. Well, if all people have rights, those rights simply can't belong to American citizens. If we believe in American citizenship, we have to believe in the moral claims of people who are not American citizens, not here. Zod doesn't believe that. Zod believes that there are no moral claims, no moral responsibilities to people who are not one's fellow citizens. He is a satire of nationalism or patriotism that has lost all contact with all of the human goods. Now, you might think, aha, Trump. Well, not really. Machiavelli. If you look at Leo Strauss's book on Machiavelli, he describes what makes Machiavelli evil is not the belief that the prince should do evil things. For Leo Strauss, the evil teaching in Machiavelli, which is in Discourses on Living, it's that Machiavelli taught democratic, by the standards of that time, say, small r Republican statesmen, that all actions in pursuit of the city's good are themselves good. That right Right or wrong are entirely determined based on what is the good of the polis. That is what Zod believes. Zod is a villain out of Strauss, where Zod says, everything I do, no matter how evil, is for the good of my people. That's right out of Strauss. Now, did he get it independently? That's true. But the impulse behind it, that right or wrong is determined entirely by national or the interest of the polis, is what makes Zod a monster. Yeah, and it's not clear that he can conceive at all of a new hope for his people, except at the expense of somebody else which is even weirder so it seems when once you accept that political standards determine everything then the reaction to anything that goes wrong can no longer be to say that maybe you got something wrong or maybe sometimes chance is stronger than justice the only thing you can say is somebody in the political association is to blame somebody has to be punished somebody has to be destroyed and then things will get better And that is indeed monstrous. It ruins both moral and intellectual horizons. Most of being human is simply no longer visible. Both the villain and the prologue that sets him up show that somehow this is a danger we need to take seriously. And part of that has to do again with why there is such an audience for violence and superheroes. The desire to get more justice, to get more punishment in, is way more pervasive than people would like to admit. But just like with the characters in Plato's Republic, Nolan is trying to teach people, is this really what you want? If you were to really get what you think you want when you say you want to punish your enemies and that nothing matters except that what would that look like would you really like that 
Yeah, and to get to the contemporary politics, there's quite a few people, both Trump supporters and college left-wing activists. They just draw the circles differently. I mean, Zod draws a circle around Krypton. To fellow Kryptonians, everything is owed. To people outside, nothing is owed. I think a lot of contemporary politics, people draw up their circles the same way. And the only thing that's keeping people away from committing violence on each other is a combination of habit, physical cowardice, and love of comfort. Uh, if you actually look at people's rhetoric, hopefully they don't believe it. I think one of the teachings, and I think it's a serious teaching and a real teaching in Nolan's superhero movies, is moderation. Not in the sense of the, that senator from Maine, but in the sense of goods inevitably compete. You can't have every good thing at the same time. In Batman Begins, Ra's al Ghul's, Henry Ducard's insight is that Gotham is corrupt. And he's right. In The Dark Knight, Joker's insight is that people's actions are shaped by their self-interest in a way that they themselves would like not to acknowledge. And he's right. And his other insight is that at the end of the day, people's plans can't be based on reality because reality is more complicated than any plan. And he's right. Bane. Bane's argument is that Gotham is founded on a lie, and he's right. Zod believes that Krypton can't go on the way it does, and he's right. All of these villains are right in their diagnosis in some small sense. What they all lack is moderation. Ra's al Ghul cannot see that destruction is not the right answer. These people have rights. Reform is possible, and if reform is possible, then reform is morally necessary, even if it's more difficult. Joker cannot see that people are capable of making the right decisions for the right reasons. Bane is not able to see that reforming society produces less suffering than tearing it down. Zod cannot see that politics has gone too far. I remember reading an interview years ago where Nolan says, I want my villains to have a point, and all his villains have a point. But the overarching theme of all of his movies is that all of his villains lack moderation. They're not able to recognize that human beings are complicated. Only trying to minister to one part of the human person is ultimately doomed to failure, and it's going to produce a self-destructive rage in the person who's trying to do it. Yep, the way Nolan structures his stories gives you, on the one hand, something to think about, because theoretically all the villains do make very intelligent critiques of the situation, and rhetorically this is supposed to correspond to the anxiety of the audience. We wouldn't be going to these stories, much less talking about them, if we thought that we live in a world that's hunky-dory. We would have no way to even understand why these people are complaining. But aside from the theoretical insights of the villain, there are also the limits of what they understand that are worked out through the plot, and it is that residue, the distinction between what these people get right in their critiques and what is there to be seen, that the plot needs to show you when once your attention has been attracted, and that's what rewards reflection on these things. You get to learn what the content of moderation might be in the way it opposes certain typical radical criticisms of our times. And I think this is of a piece with the reason Nolan doesn't think noble lies are going to cut it. We don't live simply in a gullible or ignorant or vulgar age. We at the same time live in a very skeptical, very inquisitive age. That means that there's a kind of dignity and a kind of risk to that. The audience needs to be made more thoughtful and it is interested in more thoughtful fare than is usually available. But at the same time, that means it's harder and harder to come to the right conclusions. The temptation to leave it at one serious criticism, to reduce the world to that and to reject it, therefore, that temptation is becoming greater. Yeah, and I think media probably helps with that too. In the Agora, everybody would be there. In social media, you can curate it so you only get the messages that you want to hear. That's all true. Another thing in Man of Steel is that 
There's no real settlement at the end of the movie. The movie, both physically and in terms of plot, rejects Zod's view of the world. But that doesn't answer the question. What should be the relationship of the super being to his fellow citizens? One of the criticisms of the Man of Steel that I heard was that the violence, all these towers coming down, did not seem to lead to a political response by the end of the movie. And one of the things that I found relatively unsatisfying was when Superman says to the general, you don't have to worry about me, I'm from Kansas. Well, sorry, we're going to have to keep worrying about you, buddy. You don't have to be Lex Luthor to have some worries. This guy has an argument with Lois Lane. Now he's going to decapitate So None of us should be trusted with that kind of power. So that's one of the themes that if no one had been around to tell the second Man of Steel story, the second Superman story, those were going to be the themes, the complaint that people had that all those people died and there were no consequences. I think the next story was intended to be the political consequences. How does society accommodate itself to this shock? I think all the damage that was done in Man of Steel was designed to create the backdrop of the next story. And I think his next story was, oh my God, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are dead. We have somebody whose physical power places him above the power of the state. What do we do? I think that criticism of Nolan was ultimately premature. I think that was supposed to be the next theme, where the first story is about the limits of citizenship. And the second story is, how does citizenship accommodate the powerful? Now, the powerful could be Superman, who could lift buildings or is invulnerable. Or the powerful could be Bill Gates, who's got more money than most states. How does the police restrain him? And I think that was intended ultimately to be the theme of Man of Steel 2, which instead became Dawn of Justice. Yeah, so with that, you see a turn from a fairly generic American situation. The America of Man of Steel is easily recognizable, but precisely because of its appeal to the Boy Scout ethics that Pa Kent instills at such great cost into Clark Kent, and partly because of this, I grew up in Kansas, I'm as American as all that, it becomes somewhat generic and doesn't look closely enough to what's happening in America that would raise this problem. How do you deal with powers that defy human comprehension, maybe, and that defy the way the political organization of America can deal with them? In Man of Steel, the sacrificial gesture of Pa Kent is supposed to remind you of something. If you really are looking up to a power greater than man, how do you know that power will see you with any more benevolence than you do a dog? Pa Kent is willing to sacrifice his life for a dog to teach his son this lesson. Because of that sacrifice, Clark Kent, as he becomes Superman, is always bound to look on human beings in an understanding, benevolent way that makes a certain community possible between them. He's neither trying to reject human beings because they're merely human, nor trying to force them to become something else than human. And so long as that obtains, some kind of community may be possible between Superman and Americans. That would have had to be explored, and it didn't turn out that way. But I think that the other threat, what other kind of being might America not have community with, that's Lex Luthor. I think that that was one of the better parts of Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. How do you think about that villain? The idea of Luthor as a tech billionaire I thought was really smart. At the end of the day, if you look at Dawn of Justice from beginning to end, his character makes zero sense. But there is an embryo of a Nolan-esque Lex Luthor in the first act. Now, he disappears because I think the movie was taken away from him. And I think the producers said, okay, well, the necessity of getting from fight scene to fight scene is more important than the consistency of the character. But there's one scene early in the movie where Lex Luthor is talking to an audience and he talks about wisdom without power, the pain of having wisdom without power and how that's a paradox. 
that sets up Luthor as a villain right out of Socrates. Nolan is constantly in dialogue with the ancient Greeks. Socrates, the wise man, he knows what he doesn't know. And the wise man understands that what he doesn't know outweighs what he does know. And for the wise man, the sweetness in life, the best things in life, are seeking knowledge and communing with your friends. The wise man lives the life of Socrates. Lex Luthor can't understand that. And then, therefore, he seeks power. But under Socrates' own understanding, the wise man might be dragged into power, into political life. The only way you can seek wisdom is through community, where a social animal. And the only way people can have community is in a polis. So the wise man might be drawn into the role of politics. But that's not what he prefers. Luther wants to rule, which means that Luther is a fraud. He's not as smart as he thinks he is. He's not as wise as he thinks he is. And he's just a technician. But at the same time, he's, there's a famous cartoon where there's a mad scientist and one of his victims says, well, you want to take over the world? He goes, yeah. And the guy says, well, do you have a control world to show that this world will be better than the other world? And the guy says, no. And the caption was, the sad truth is that most mad scientists are really just mad engineers. And Lex Luthor is a mad engineer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. So yeah, it's true that at some level Socrates and uh, a guy like Luthor or Menon in the dialogues start from the same problem. How do you deal with the limits of your powers of understanding and your other human powers? And Socrates is willing to live with the uncertainty. He knows how to articulate the important questions about being human, but he doesn't have very useful answers for all of them. He doesn't feel like there's a way he can use what he knows to make the world perfect, and he's skeptical of the enterprise because he knows that other people who want to use their knowledge to make the world perfect don't know nearly as much as they think they do. They have deluded themselves into thinking that they have sufficient, if not perfect, knowledge because they can't deal with that uncertainty, with the limits of their human powers facing the world and facing other human beings. Lex Luthor wants to reduce the problem of consent in politics, partly because nobody would consent to his rule, but partly because he doesn't understand why that might be important. He doesn't know how to disagree with himself, much less how to disagree with other people. So there would have to be in that story what you don't get in Batman v Superman, a counterpart that you assume would be partly human, partly Superman, that would show this kind of moderation, a willingness to limit one's own attempt to take control over other people's lives, even when one thinks one knows better than they do. Because without that limit, any awareness of being human is destroyed. And it seems like that is the project of the tech genius Lex Luthor. On the one hand, he wants to be able to kill a god. On the other hand, and by that power, he believes he will be able to become a god. What he hates is the fact that he's a human being. He's stuck with being human and that has become unbearable to him. He's seeking power as a way to fix himself and because he's a tech billionaire that just makes it more obvious how practical that is. He really wants to uh, be able to kill a god so that he can make himself a god. Whether or not that would be any good for him or for anybody else, they think that does speak to another one of our friend Peter Lawler's concerns, the transhumanism of our tech geniuses. These people, brilliant as they are, don't seem to know that it's better to be human than the alternative. I think that's one of the themes. It's tough to tell because ultimately the movie Christopher Nolan would have wanted to be made, didn't get made. But I think one of the parallels that Man of Steel 2 would have wanted was, if you look at our contemporary world, what person would be the closest to a Superman? Somebody who would be beyond the reach of the state. And I don't think it's exactly true, but you can look at the metaphor of the tech billionaire who's owner of a multinational company and who was fascinated by genetic engineering, as Lex Luthor is. In reality, the police could arrest Bill Gates. But if you want to create an ideal type of a guy who has unlimited amounts of money, whose reach extends outside the state, you can kind of see 
the metaphor was supposed to be a comparison between Lex Luthor and Man of Steel, where Lex Luthor thinks he's beyond the state, and now there's a guy who's beyond him, and it's killing him, that there's something that he can't ultimately control. But I think the focus of the story was supposed to be how do people of this sort of power relate to civil society? How do they relate to their fellow citizens? And Luthor's answer is to be above them. If I'm not above them, then Superman will be above them, and that can't happen. And that's how it was botched, but still have all this interesting stuff there to think about. And it also points something out, the specific way in which this was botched. It violates the rule of these kinds of Nolan stories. Nolan has found a way to retrieve Greek tragedy in a situation where it is not otherwise possible anymore by transforming the tragic hero into a villain. As we said, all our interesting villains have a very serious criticism of our society that is to a large extent valid at the level of diagnosis. And then something snaps in specific ways for different reasons. Each one snaps and instead of getting any kind of smart solution or a way to live with the problems we can't solve, they turn insane. And that's how they come to a tragic ending. And in that way, it seems like he has found the vehicle to voice all sorts of anxieties about our society and all sorts of radical criticism while disarming some of their more dangerous consequences and while reassuring people that there is a way to think through these things and there are resources within a society to face up to these problems and face them down. And that's as close to something like prudence or statesmanship as you can have in poetry. I would totally agree with that. Ultimately, the teaching is moderation. Perfect justice is not possible. But at the same time, nihilism or despair is neither necessary nor desirable. The Dark Knight is a world without the supernatural, as far as I can tell. But at the same time, the idea of good and evil, of right and wrong, of virtue and vice, they exist in that world. They're not illusions, which I think is interesting. But at the same time, he doesn't just leave it at that. He also posits that goods are always inevitably in conflict. Trade-offs are inevitable. Passion is part of life, but too much passion is ultimately dangerous. All of his villains have passions for truth and for justice, as they understand it. But their passion gets the better of their reason, destroys their ability to see competing goods. And that's what makes them villains. It seems like it's the human condition they're trying to reject. Yes, the fact that we're, on the one hand, inevitably flawed, but on the other hand, we do have the capacity to deal with it, to moderate our vices, is something they can't understand. Most of them want to simply either punish us for our vices, or get rid of our vices altogether, or simply have us just acknowledge our vices and live with them to the ultimate extreme that a Joker would like. Christopher Nolan says, no, you can't get rid of vice. It's Madisonian teaching that the political is necessary. We started with Batman Begins, where everyone is simply pursuing private gain. And we end with Man of Steel, where a society is ground, everyone is pursuing the public good. And both of these societies are fatally flawed, because neither one of them take into account a complete understanding of the human person. Right. But as we have tried to show, by comparing the kinds of insights you get from villains with their specific errors and the tragedies to which they come, you see that there is some way to combine private and public things. And that's something that heroes have to learn too. Batman has to learn to step back from that mask, just like uh, Superman has to learn to live with his death at the end of Man of Steel in a certain sense. That's supposed to teach him that he cannot simply think of himself as immortal and therefore perfect. I would have been interested to see how Nolan would have dealt with the problem of the relationship of Superman to civil society at the end of what would have been Man of Steel 2, because I don't actually see what the answer was. I would have been interested to see how he would have resolved the tension between somebody who was more powerful than the state, but at the same time was subject to it, other than him simply choosing to live by the law, his legality being simply subject to his whim. 
I'm not sure that would have been a satisfying answer. Society could not survive. On the one hand, everybody's compliance was based entirely on the threat of violence, because then we need a autocracy. But at the same time, I'm not sure that society could survive in which everybody chooses to obey absent the threat of violence. Right, so think about the problem in this way, if Superman doesn't have to face his mortality in a coffin, which is at some level fake, but at some level is true, how would that do anything except turn the world into a place where nobody bothers to look which way they cross the road because they're living on a miracle? Right, there's no consequences. Human beings would abandon their humanity in exasperation or in, in a kind of contentedness. You're never gonna have to pay the price, Superman will always save you. And how can Superman refuse to? He's good, he wants to do good. So that's the problem that's set up in Man of Steel. I think part of the answer to your question is set up in the education he receives from his father and why Pa Kent insists so much on turning him into this all-American Boy Scout. Superman learns about his powers fairly soon, and after a period in his childhood where he experiences the world as chaos, he simply perceives too much to be able to organize it. When once he gains self-control, however, he becomes aware of chaos in a different sense, of the dangers that people are faced with, and his instinct is to save everybody all the time. His father has to tell him one day, maybe you should have let them die. And the boy thinks this is horrifying. He's shocked that his father could say something like that to him after having brought him up to be a good guy. But on the other hand, that's a very real question. How can you live your life knowing that you'll always be saved or knowing that you'll always have to save everybody in whatever circumstances? That would abolish any humanity. And that is the real danger for Superman. He might be tempted because of the purity of his intention and the vaguely infinite character of his powers to solve everything for everybody. And part of the teaching of his father is that you can't do that and still be human or leave humanity to other people. There have got to be limits to what you think of as the correspondence of the purity of your intentions and your powers. And of course, this is the problem of anger. The purity of intentions is never as directly felt as when one is righteously angry, and power is never felt quite immediately except in that sort of moment. And that's where all the danger lies. Superman too could turn into a monster if he decided to solve everything for everybody, either out of anger at their insanity, or on the other hand out of anger at dangers they're facing that he feels the need to solve. It would seem that's the moral component of his education, and it seems to have been very thorough. By his sacrifice, Pa Kent sealed the deal. He showed Kent what actually, not as a model, but in reality, what actually is the relationship of superior to inferior. There is no other proof that you're superior to somebody else, except that is to say, if you help him, by sharing in a common good, is superiority proved. Whereas, how about this deposit is where this could have been going? Especially as a difference between Luthor and Clark Kent. One of the opening scenes in the first Superman movie, the Donner movie, everything in Smallville is outstanding in that movie. The scene where it gets to Metropolis, he is hit by a car. There's a Clark Kent-shaped hole in the car. The movie right away tells you this person is not affected by anything that happens. This person is above. And then he's introduced to Lois Lane. Lois Lane is a less likable character in that movie than any of the villains in any Nolan movie ever. Uh, <laughs> Early in that scene where Clark Kent says, can you send half of my salary to Smallville? And Lois Lane says, are you sending it to your gray-haired mother? And I'm like, you know, Clark, if you were to burn her to death with your heat vision, nobody knows about heat vision. Everyone would just say it's spontaneous combustion. She's the worst human being in the history of movies, up to and including Hannibal Lecter. Uh, so, <laughs> but 
But one of the ways Clark Kent could accommodate himself is once again, you go back to Socrates. Who is the most miserable person in the world? The tyrant. The tyrant can have no true friendships. He's always watching his back. Even though tyrant is all-powerful, at the end of the day, is absolutely miserable because what makes people happy? Human relationships. And the tyrant is inevitably cut off from all real human relationships. So why does Superman accommodate himself to the rule of law? Well, for the same reason the wise man, Socrates, accommodated himself to the rule of law in Athens, even when it was stupid, even when they sentenced him to execution. Because in the absence of the rule of law, in the absence of apostles, Human beings can't really be human beings. So if Clark Kent were to try to make the world perfect, that would be his real vulnerability, to go back to Peter Lawler. Ultimately, what defines him is not his super strength, his invulnerability. What defines him is that he's a relational being. That's his real kryptonite. If he tries to become a tyrant, he will destroy his ability to have human relationships. And that will be a misery much greater than the bitterness of having power. And ultimately, that is why a wise man, even an extremely powerful wise man, would accommodate himself to the city, to the rule of law. That's a great point. I think that there's a middle element here in between his personal life and his powers of what use there to the public. And as I suggested before, the moral component of Superman's education seems to have been completed by Pa Kent, but his intellectual education is fairly deficient. The early offing of Dawn of Justice wanted to hint at that, that his conception of justice is puerile. The way that's judged is that he looks down on Batman. He doesn't understand why in some situations that might be a necessary thing to do. And he wants to think of that guy as a bad guy and as a reckless guy. He doesn't see how irresponsible that is and how blind it is to human predicament. One reason Superman is not a wise man is that he's too powerful. Wisdom would have to come to him in pain. He would have to do some suffering to do some learning about what the requirements of justice are for being stuck with their limits. And so you'd expect him to discover his own limits, which cannot be moral, really, would have to be intellectual. And I think there's maybe room there for thinking through his political limits. He's not aware of the effect he has on society. This is also hinted at in various ways in relation to the press and to the Senate in Dawn of Justice. It's done badly, but it's on to something very important. This guy doesn't understand quite what effect he has on the people, quite what effect he has on the laws, and he would have to learn that and be humbled by it in order to settle into a more private life. That theme is also present in Man of Steel, where Superman gives an obviously unsatisfying answer as it relates to the government. One of the reasons why it's too bad that Nolan won't be making any more of the DC movies is that I think everything you say is true, that ultimately the central conflict between Batman and Superman, when it did come, would have come in a later movie, and it would have been, how does somebody who's lived his whole life from a certain position learn to see it from somebody else's? I don't know how much the Ben Affleck Batman owes to Christopher Nolan. Me neither. What's interesting is that he's a completely different Batman. Ben Affleck's Batman never made the transition from the rule of personal justice to the rule of law. And he's getting old and he's breaking down and he sees his mortality. Mm -hmm. And all he do is hold back the tide until he dies. There's no happy ending for this guy. There's no retirement for this guy. There's only violent death, at which point everything's going to revert to whatever it was before he showed up. And it's making him bitter and it's making him scared and it's making him more violent. There's something really touching about that, really human about that. On some level, he hadn't grown up. That's what Alfred keeps telling him in that movie. I don't think that's Zack Snyder idea. Because Alfred in that movie is like, you need to grow up, you need to meet somebody, you need to have a family, you need to move on. You can't be this guy anymore. And he knows it, but he doesn't know any way out. He can't take the first step. On the one hand, this is an alternative to the other Batman. There's no happy end for this guy. 
that's the alternative to how the Batman trilogy plays out, which is an interesting thing to explore, but on the other hand, it's also what makes room for Superman. Superman is an alternative to Batman, and you could see how this would be maddening at a certain level. This is because Superman could do the job that Batman is doing forever, unlike Batman himself. You could agonize over justice in an existential way without ever having to pay the price if you're Superman. Or at least it would look that way to Batman, who now has to face his mortality and his beaten, broken body. But on the other hand, Superman doesn't have his outlook precisely for that reason. He looks at justice in a fairly idealistic way. It's not a matter of blood and punishment to him. And you can see how that would be maddening to Batman and how that would be a true confrontation of claims to justice that are both fairly plausible. Yeah, it would have been interesting. In order for that conflict to really play out, you probably needed another Superman movie and a Batman movie in order to set up the conflicts. Then you really could have made some money. The problem what they did was they compressed the first Batman movie and the second Superman movie and the Superman versus Batman movie into one movie. The demands of the plot overwhelmed the thematic elements of the story, which turned it into, I don't want to say it's a terrible movie by the standards of superhero action movies. I know it's not great because I've only seen it once in total. To prepare for today's podcast, I went back to Lex Luthor's scene at the party where he talks about the pain of knowledge without power, but I didn't go see the rest of the movie. But it's also not a particularly good movie except on the level of spectacle. Yeah, it's one of those what it should have been. Now it's never going to be, unfortunately. Well, we've been reviewing the past of superhero movies, partly because the present isn't that enticing and the future looks pretty grim. But there are still talented writers and directors out there. It's not impossible that one of them will strike a deal with a studio. That's part of the lesson. Warner Brothers and Christopher Nolan have a unique relationship of loyalty and mutual success. It was strained by what happened with Superman, but it hasn't been broken. It's just that Nolan went his own way with Interstellar and now Dunkirk. These are still successful movies, and the studio still gets all the prestige. It can get out of this relationship with some of the profits, but we're no longer talking about blockbusters on which modern studios depend for their staying in the black. Yeah, also, Wonder Woman was a reasonably good movie. I thought Wonder Woman was enjoyable. There's some good stuff in Wonder Woman about sin. Once again, there's a Christopher Nolan theme to it, whereas Ares, the ultimate villain, is, once again, right about human beings, but just upset. Have you seen Wonder Woman yet? Yes. I was enjoying the first two acts of the movie. I mean, this is a decent action movie. This is very good. Outstanding. Chris Pine is very good. The action scenes are better directed than anything in the Batman movies. And then Ares is given his Zod monologue. And I saw all the threads come together of Ares' understanding of human evil. People think of Ares as the god of war, where he's really revealing to human beings our vices, which are present in all of us, and letting us destroy ourselves. And I thought of it, yeah, this is a much better movie than I thought. Usually those kinds of CGI scenes where the villain monologues and this giant battle, usually that's the part of the movie where I start yawning. I do agree with that, that it, it's like, one yeah. of two insights in the movie. There's a reason we think about war the way we do. We are enchanted, we are attracted, fascinated, but at the same time horrified. It's the possibility that that's the truth about who we are, and that that's the truth about being, that being is striving, that endless war is the only thing there is, and everything peaceful is just an illusion. And I think that deserved somebody like Christopher Nolan to make that come alive. What struck me about Wonder Woman not being American is how it gets everything wrong about the Great War. But that was a great opportunity, actually, to prove how people might turn to political suicide on a continental, if not planetary, level. 
that could have been done great by somebody who knew how to write. Still, the insight is there at the end, and the closing act is where the dialogue is pretty good. I thought that otherwise it would have been much better if they had never opened their mouths. I also thought that the opening act, that's supposed to be an analog of Krypton, you get this Mediterranean island, Temiskira, of Amazon warriors. I thought that was all of it done badly, without exception, and ridiculous. But would it have been impossible to think about what it might mean to be an Amazon? Maybe there's just no analog for that in America. But I could think of a few. That would have been the one chance in popular spectacles to reflect on the actual situation and dangers of America's warrior classes, who are very isolated from the society. It's true about the Amazon island as not being especially interesting in and of itself. It also points to one of the limitations of the movie, which is that it's not a brand, it's a personal story about one person's awakening to human sinfulness, but also not turning to a moderation. In other words, Diane, that sin is something that's external entirely. And once you get rid of that external force, everything will be utopian. And she learns it isn't, just like Ares learns it isn't. But she's able to embrace a kind of moderation. But unlike in the Nolan movies, it's a personal moderation. She accepts human flaws. Yeah. In both. And I think that that's the other insight of the movie outside of this fear that being is striving, there is this other problem that uh, you see with Diana learning for herself that there is something evil in her heart that she couldn't have been all that good if she wanted to destroy people that much. And I think that's what uh, is supposed to lead her to a new moderation and the kind of abandonment of her role or of her previous self-understanding as a kind of world savior, right? Yeah, she's a participant in the humanity. She is not ultimately the savior and ruler of humanity. It's kind of undermining the first act because Amazon Island... Yes, it does. I mean, just as a plot and as characterization, it's horrible. The ending redeems a lot of it, and the rest, I guess, is just fun. But I think there were way too many opportunities missed. So you would need to see a bit more about what it is that teaches this woman to restrain herself. The movie does this horribly. As she learns that she has superpowers... She just goes on from killing people for no reason, punching them through church spires. I understand that Americans might want to see all this picturesque Europe being ruined in CGI after all those movies where New York City is destroyed. Get a relief from reenacting 9-11 on 4,000 screens three times a year. But it's horrifyingly responsible, this character. Her awareness of her powers gives her no sense that she shouldn't be killing people, that you don't really need to, you don't have to be afraid anymore. So that's the way in which she's so different to Superman. And even Batman doesn't go around killing quite like that in the Nolan movies. One of the criticisms of Man of Steel was, especially by comic book people, especially by comic book writers from the 70s and 80s, where the convention against superheroes willingly killing was much stronger, was that Superman killing Zod was a betrayal of the character. What they really meant was their understanding of his character. Yeah, Um, they were wrong. They don't understand how that is earned. They're refusing to acknowledge that, at some level, living within civil society means having to be able to use fatal force. It's inevitable, as much as someone might dislike it. Nolan's world is one where consequences are just more real than they were in a 1970s comic book, where at the end of the day, pretty much everybody gets saved most of the time. They're not willing to accept that this is a world where it has more consequences in the world that they're used to. I don't want to defense this of Wonder Woman, though I was entertained by the movie, if you look, it has some good things, and uh, those two insights in Ares and Diana at the end look quite persuasive. But if you want to see how that's a problem, just in the logic of the movie, that whole part of the third act is completely extrinsic to the plot. 
this might have well never have happened or have been somebody's dream. There's no relation to the plot. All you need is those couple of brave guys and superb and sacrificial Chris Pine. Yeah, at the end of the day, the conflict between Diane and Ares ultimately turns out to be symbolic. It's all yeah. about her personal awakening rather than resolving the plot. Exactly. But and but you know, is, in a Nodalan movie, the symbols and the plot are tied up. Yeah, That's how you develop a theme. In this case, they're not, and they seem to me ham-fisted. But I agree that there is a lot to redeem at the end, and there's a lot of fun to get there. So by no means do I want to pan it. Well, here's the thing. When Nolan was making Batman movies, we have, in America, in Hollywood in general, there's a lot of cultural resources when it comes to making a Batman movie. We've made a lot of bad Batman movies. There are models of how to make a Batman movie and how not to make a Batman movie. And the character of Batman is relatively applicable to a large number of circumstances. In other words, if you're going to cast a writer, okay, make a Batman movie and don't make it terrible, you can see it going in any number of directions. I think most writers would find it much more difficult to write a good Superman script than to write a good Batman script. Now look at Wonder Woman. It was a bondage and sadomasochistic comic book that was marketed to children. He runs around in a 4th of July dominatrix of Yes, that's and it's true. never been a good or even decent Wonder Woman film or movie or television show. That's true. The writer and producer and director of a Wonder Woman movie under those circumstances is dealing with a lot of handicaps. It's all terra incognito. This yeah, is that's true. What Wonder Woman is trying to build the first airplane ever, and it's not going to be conquered. Or if it is, God was really heavily involved because <laughs> you should get a co-writing credit. This was somebody starting from scratch in terms of how to do an interpretation. Now, there are comic books where Wonder Woman is a perfectly fine character and it's perfectly fine stories. Several years ago, they managed to write a story arc in Wonder Woman where her relationship with the gods is analogous to family dysfunction in contemporary America. It was really good. Uh, wow. There's, there were some really good ideas there. Some of those themes actually were smuggled into the movie in a way that's very different, but recognizable to people who read the comic books. But at the end of the day, the people who were making Wonder Woman did not say, all right, this is where the Michael Keaton Batman went wrong, and this is where the George Clooney Batman went wrong. They were starting with, all right, what do we do with the costume? The costume's terrible. And they were, and they were <laughs> sure. It's one of those things where you have a car that's got thousands of things wrong with it, and it runs, and it belches smoke a little bit. Can't quite get it over 50, but the miracle is that it runs. And the fact that they were able to tell an above-average story that actually had some moments of real insight, if it had been just like your average Marvel movie, the average Marvel movie doesn't have a lot of insight, but it looks nice, and you know there's a lot of fighting. Mm-hmm. If it had been that good, I'd have been extremely impressed. And it was better than that good. It was better than Ant-Man. Did all of the themes work? Not exactly. The whole idea of Amazon Island as a utopia undermines the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Because if utopia is possible, then maybe Ares is right. But at the end of the day, the fact that it was as good as it was and insightful as it was is extremely impressive because on one level, she just had a much harder job, the director. Yeah, that's true. Well, we've given a dramatic account of this as well with criticisms and praise and trying to reappraise it. So we've gone through the superheroes of the DC universe. While not comprehensive, we do have quite a lot of breadth here. I'm pleased with how this has turned out, Pete. Two hours, man. That's a long time to talk about superheroes. It's a long podcast, but it's something people find fun to listen to. I hope people will enjoy it, and I can't tell you how much fun this was. I had a great time. Thanks a lot for joining me, and let's do this again sometime fairly soon. Hopefully, let's do this. Okay, Pete, have a great day. Bye-bye. Thank you, and goodbye.